EcoReport is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning, and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Phil Casper. Members of the Bloomington City Council approved a resolution last week calling on the U.S. Congress to enact a revenue neutral carbon fee on fossil fuels. Council member Dave Rollo co sponsored the resolution with Council member Tim Mayer. The City of Bloomington urges the United States Congress to enact without delay a fee on carbon based fossil fuels. Section 2, the fee should be collected once as far upstream in the economy as practical or at the port of entry into the United States. Section 3, the fee should start low and progressively and predictably increase to achieve a goal of reducing U.S. CO2 emissions and equivalents to 10% of 1990 levels. All fee revenue should be returned to households to protect low- and middle-income Americans from the impact of rising prices due to the fee. The international competitiveness of U.S. businesses should be protected by using border tariffs and tax refunds. Rolo said Indiana is already feeling the effects of extreme weather patterns caused by global warming. Rolo went on to give examples including damage in 1990 from a record-breaking 27 tornadoes and a $48 million loss of fruit crops in 2007 due to unusual spring weather. Rolo said a carbon fee will be an incentive to use more sustainable energy practices and spur innovation in how energy is consumed. Several members of Citizens Climate Lobby spoke in support of the resolution, which is based on proposed legislation created by the organization. State Coordinator and SPIA grad Alex York said the resolution being put forth by the city council can influence other parts of the state to support the legislation. We have other chapters around the state who are somewhat waiting for Bloomington to be the first mover in doing this resolution to gain uh, support from other municipalities so that we can show our represented uh, officials in Washington, your local cities are asking for this. As one of the youngest people at the meeting, York asked the council to think of his generation and their children when considering the resolution. The council unanimously passed the resolution calling on Congress to enact a revenue-neutral carbon fee and dividend. Now we'll hear an interview with EcoReport's undercover dumpster correspondent. We're keeping his identity concealed because of his ongoing investigative reporting. Aaron Comforti sat down with him to get a brief update on the Bloomington dumpster situation. Hey, welcome to EcoReport. Why, thank you. As our dumpster correspondent, what's going on out there these days? Well, like most days, uh, there's definitely food out there. One dumpster, there was 10 small deli containers of various things like you'd get off the cold salad bar at a grocery store. An entire uh, case of 
popcorn in bags. Uh, looked like a deal where the box had been dropped and a couple of the bags busted open, so uh, the whole case got thrown out, um, which is a pretty common occurrence. At least 30 or 40 bottles of uh, sunscreen. Sunscreen does have an expiration date, but they're supposed to be good for up to three years. And that same dumpster, we found uh, three boxes of candy. Uh, once again, the expiration date has passed, but everything in the packages is fine. So we'll work to pass those out to some folks who want them and, you know, have some candy for free. I noticed that you didn't mention the names of any of the dumpsters where you found these things. Why is that? For me, uh, unfortunately, I, I'd like to think, like, if you point out mistakes um, or, or areas where businesses could improve, that they might take those to heart and, uh, and you know, maybe make some changes. But I think in reality what often happens is uh, they take steps to keep people from finding out about their mistakes. And so... Uh, one place I frequent quite often has put up a no loitering police take notice sign, um, and that's happened within the past month. Uh, this is a place for at least a couple of years now. I've pulled hundreds of pounds of candy, and that's, I mean, that's not an exaggeration, hundreds of pounds of candy, granola bars, juices, I could go on and on. Um, but so I do kind of keep things under the radar to some extent to protect not only me, but other people that I know um, who use dumpsters as a resource. Uh, I'm not I'm not just putting it all out on the line as of yet. Well, we'll definitely look forward to hearing more about your weekly discoveries in the dumpsters around Bloomington. Thanks again for coming on the show. No problem. Thank you, Aaron. Of course, not all waste ends up in the dumpster. Much of the waste, especially plastic, ends up in oceans and fresh waterways. To combat this plastic pollution, the United Nations took action to reduce the use of small particle plastics in consumer goods. This action emerged from the Economist World Ocean Summit in Bali at the end of February and aims to eliminate the major source of pollution. These tiny particles, less than one millimeter in size, are found commonly in fabrics, cosmetics, and plastic shopping bags. The microparticles in clothing are almost entirely found in synthetic fabrics like polyester, rayon, and nylon, which currently make up 60% of clothing worldwide. When washed, plastic microfibers break off and end up in the washing machine effluent. They ultimately make their way through wastewater plants and into marine environments where they enter the food chain. Microfibers make up 85% of human-made debris on shorelines around the world, according to a 2011 study. While some companies have started to suggest interim solutions, such as washing synthetics less or capturing the fibers with filters, others believe a larger systemic solution, such as using natural materials that aren't made of plastic, is the only true solution. Many personal care products like toothpaste, scrubs, and peels now contain plastic microparticles, which find their way down the drain and end up in oceans and fresh waterways. Scientists say that the equivalent of a dump truck load of plastic is deposited in the world's oceans every minute, and this quantity will only increase as consumption and population grow. By 2050, scientists project that there'll be more plastic in the seas than fish. More locally, there is concern for the long-term impact of microparticles in the Great Lakes. The extent of the contamination in the Great Lakes has not been studied extensively. Most work has been limited to Lake Michigan. Most of the data collected comes from trolling, shadow, trolling shallow depths with a very fine filter. Illinois approved a ban on the sale of products containing microbeads last year. 
Several other states have since moved to adopt similar legislation. Major manufacturers of personal care products, including Johnson Johnson, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, and L'Oreal, announced they would phase out plastic microbeads and replace them with natural alternatives such as ground seeds or nutshells. During the 2015 legislative session, a bill was introduced into the Indiana House that would end the use of plastic microparticles in Indiana by 2019. Governor Pence signed the legislation. And in Honduras, people are mourning the first anniversary of the assassination of Berta Cáceres, who was an indigenous, grassroots environmental and social justice activist and was the 2015 winner of the prestigious Goldman Environmental Prize. Cáceres won the prize for her decade-long fight against the Agua Zarca Dam, a project planned for a river sacred to the indigenous Linca people. Recently, The Guardian reported that two of the people charged with her murder were trained by the United States at the School of the Americas, which has trained Latin American military personnel for years. According to a source quoted by The Guardian, quote, the murder of Berta Cáceres has all of the characteristics of a well-planned operation designed by military intelligence, unquote. On March 2nd, 25 members of the U.S. House of Representatives reintroduced the Berta Cáceres Human Rights in Honduras Act. That legislation would suspend U.S. military and security training as well as aid to Honduras because of its ties to human rights violations. And on Mexico's northern border with the United States, ecologists are raising concerns about Donald Trump's proposed border wall, which would threaten the habitats of 111 endangered animal species. The wall would cut through four wildlife reserves on the U.S. side of the border and a handful of nature reserves on the Mexican side as well. The region along the U.S.-Mexico border is filled with rich ecosystems and is home to many animals whose migratory and territorial movements require free passage through areas like the Sonoran Desert and the Rio Grande Valley. Scientists are concerned that isolating populations could lead to less genetic diversity and a higher risk of disease and even extinction. Species at risk include ocelots, bears, bighorn sheep, bald eagles, and the U.S.'s last remaining wild jaguars. And two U.S. states just north of the border region, New Mexico and Colorado, were recently included in a list of four states that have experienced the most severe impacts of gas fracking. That's right. A new study from Duke University, published in Environmental Science and Technology, has found that fracking in four states, Colorado, New Mexico, North Dakota, and Pennsylvania, caused over 6,000 spills in 10 years. This rate of spills is much higher than the EPA acknowledged in a June 2015 report. The researchers found that as much as 16% of fracked gas and oil wells spill hydrocarbons, chemical-filled water, fracking fluids, and other substances. That's equal to 55 spills per thousand wells in any given year. When the EPA calculated the number of fracking spills, the agency counted only spills that occurred during fracking itself instead of the entire process surrounding fracking. The Duke researchers found that 50% of spills were associated with storage and moving fluids through pipelines. Equipment failure was the primary factor, and loading and unloading trucks entailed more human error than at any other point in the process. 
For years, environmental scientists have been sounding alarms that oil and gas extraction through fracking and other types of drilling emit carcinogenic substances like benzene. As oil and gas extraction are taking place increasingly in residential neighborhoods, this health concern is becoming more urgent. A new study from the University of Colorado, published in the journal PLOS, PLOS One, investigated whether the proximity of homes to oil and gas facilities was related to a risk of blood cancers using a registry-based case control study design. The researchers found that children and young adults with one type of leukemia, acute lymphocytic, were over four times more likely than those with other types of cancer who live within 10 miles of an active gas or oil well. The study was done on Colorado residents because many residential communities in Colorado lie within one mile of hundreds of different oil and gas wells. Unfortunately, the health impacts of pollution from oil and gas wells and plastics is having major effect on children worldwide. According to a report from the World Health Organization, or WHO, released on March 6th, Every year, pollution worldwide kills approximately 1.7 million children under the age of five. Dirty water, inadequate sanitation, poor hygiene, and indoor and outdoor pollution, besides injuries, cause one in four deaths of children one month to five years old around the world. The WHO Director General said a polluted environment is lethal, especially for young children. Their developing organs and immune systems and their smaller bodies and airways make them particularly susceptible to diseases from dirty air and water. Such unsafe conditions can lead to fatal cases of diarrhea, malaria, and pneumonia. Air pollution can also lead to a risk of adult illnesses such as asthma, heart disease, stroke, and cancer. Children are also exposed to dangerous chemicals through food, water, air, and household products. Pollution isn't an issue only for developing countries either. That finishes up our weekly headlines. For Eco Report. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Phil Casper. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us if you have any thoughts about stories we've aired or if you have any future story ideas. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's Eco Feature, we hear the second part of Bob Kissel's conversation about biodiversity with Indiana University professor Roger Hangarder. In part two of our biodiversity interview, Dr. Hangarder talks about our local area and threats to its biodiversity. So does biodiversity vary according to latitude from polar to equator? The most biodiverse areas are usually around the equator. Temperature is more stable. Day length is very stable and there's lots of nutrient cycling going on. As you get further away, it's cooler. The season, growing seasons are shorter, and you end up having less photosynthesis to serve as the foundation for the biodiversity. What are some of the most biodiverse plant and animal families? Animals, I believe, it's the beetles. 
in plants, I believe it's the orchid. Often really difficult to find. But and seemingly difficult to grow outside of there. So yeah, so a lot of orchids actually have really intimate relationships with the microbial community that they are associated with, and so moving them is difficult. When I was reading about biodiversity, I saw this term global carrying capacity. Can you explain that? That's a kind of a loaded term, because humans think of global carrying capacity, how many humans can be carried on the planet. I think of global carrying capacity of life that can exist on the planet. Again, it all comes back to the ability of the photosynthetic organisms to maintain a biomass that everything else can exist on. Because at this point, there's no life form on this planet that can do anything without the photosynthetic energy, except for humans. And, but we really do it with photosynthetic energy. We just use old photosynthetic energy. Why is biodiversity so important to life on our planet? My feeling about this, for ecosystem or an environment or the planet as the ecosystem to really be robust, that everything has to recycle. And it's very difficult for one type of organism to do all the jobs that are required for recycling. And so the jobs sort of break down into many jobs. Each organism has their place in that bigger context of the ecosystem. So I think to keep your ecosystems running smoothly, you have to have tremendous diversity in the organisms that live within the ecosystem. You know, some environments that we think are very nutrient poor, and people who do sort of theoretical analyses of these things and populations and so on would say, you know, well, there's not enough nutrients there, so it's got to be an ecosystem with low diversity. Well, it turns out many of those are actually much, much higher diversity than people ever thought. Those are situations where I think it's really critical. If you have very little nutrition, you have to keep that nutrition in the life forms that are there. And so you have to constantly recycle it. And so you need to have organisms. It just happens that the only way to keep the nutrients there is you have to have lots of organisms that can grab this stuff as soon as it exits one organism mm -hmm. from you know decay or something. You gotta grab it as fast as you can and bring it back into the some into the life of the ecosystem. The more limited nutrition is, I think you're gonna see more biodiversity. Tropics have tremendous biodiversity in their plants and then everything of course that eats the plants. But if you look at the soil in the tropic, all the nutrition is in the top several inches. All the tree roots are in it. All the plants are living off of that top several inches. Something falls to the ground. It gets decayed right away and recycled so that that nitrogen gets back into the life. Otherwise it leaches out and it's gone. It strikes me that your description is almost the functional definition of team, except for one organism. That leads me to my next question. What are some of the major threats to biodiversity? I'd say the single most major threat to biodiversity is one species, and that's humans. Humans put themselves above everything. We've done this for a very long period of time. Humans are at the top of the pyramid, not because it's a pyramid of life in terms of existing off of each other. We think we do things in very unique ways, and we do everything, but every other organism does things in unique ways too. We don't photosynthesize, but the plants sitting here in my window do. They're just food. It's like a total disregard towards nature. Nature is something that's there, and it's okay as long as it doesn't infringe on us. If it weren't for humans, the environment would be doing what it had been doing for millions and millions of years, where things would come and grow and survive, and some would die off and go extinct, and others would fill in those niches. We'd have this constant turning over, but in a system that's recycling. We claim we recycle, but we don't really recycle. We reuse a few things, but we don't recycle. If we ever want to be part of this ecosystem where we're really part of it, we need to really become experts at recycling. 50% of the nitrogen in the 
human population comes from nitrogen that was taken out of the atmosphere using the Haber-Bosch process. 50% of humanity is here because we have fossil fuels to take nitrogen out of the atmosphere and fertilize our crops. That is not a sustainable process, and we're just moving further and further down that path. Can you talk about our regional biodiversity? I've been photographing our regional biodiversity for several years now. I've been really surprised at how much we have. You know, I actually teach a class in Costa Rica during the winter intercession. And when I'm down there, you know, the first time I went, it was like, oh, well, you know, all these birds are so spectacular. And I take pictures of them, and I compare the pictures of the birds I've photographed in Costa Rica with the birds that I photograph here. Everything we have is just as beautiful. We often disregard what we see every day. It just becomes part of our background, so you don't notice these things. You bring somebody from Costa Rica up here and let them sit in your yard for a while and watch you know, the cardinals and the blue jays. They would be astounded at the beauty of birds we have. Same with all the other organisms. You know, I go down there, it's all unique. That's what makes it seem special. Birds are birds, and birds are beautiful, period. It doesn't matter whether you're sitting here in Canada or in Costa Rica or in the Amazon. They're all beautiful. I think the biodiversity we have here is actually pretty spectacular. Of course, it's not as nearly as diverse as it is in a place like the tropic. It's much more diverse than I really thought it would be. The sad thing is we don't have a lot of land for these things to exist in in their natural state. You know, I'm sure it was it would be much more diverse if we had more forests and more prairies and more wetlands than we do. But, you know, we have what we have so far. Hopefully we hang on to some of this stuff. A lot of it's managed in ways that aren't really compatible with the actual biological life cycle of the organisms or managed for other purposes. Are there threats specific to our local biodiversity? I think development is one of the biggest threats to biodiversity because we don't really see it. If you watch the way developers talk, if they go to the city council or something and make their arguments for why they're going to do these things, when the developers were talking about it, referred to it as wasted space. Vacant for us, by definition, means humans don't live there. So these are forests with millions of organisms living in them that we just plow down so that we can put a dozen families into. It's very easy. You know, we don't have much in the way of environmental impact concerns on this. What are some of the ongoing and proposed solutions to maintain biodiversity in the natural state that, say, today? I think the biggest thing is trying to maintain these and expand the habitat areas. Organizations like the Sycamore Land Trust are really, really good at trying to build these corridors. And that's a really important part for biodiversity because there are things that just live here, but many things live here temporarily. They migrate, and in fact, that's one of the things when I'm in Costa Rica, I see birds in Costa Rica that I see here. (laughs) They're smart. They go down there for the winter. So these things have to be able to come through, and they have to have a place to eat. Some of them breed here. They have to have a place to breed, which means they have to have food for their babies. So if we don't have habitats for them, of course, we're not going to have as much biodiversity. And we have a serious problem. There's not a lot of these sort of trail areas left. Where we have them, they're now logging a lot of these things in rates that I've never seen before. Forest service people will tell you, well, that's good for, it creates new niches, and I don't think there's any data to support that. Restoration projects like Goose Pond, a really good example of that. But, you know, Goose Pond has to be managed because it's not big enough place to really restore itself back to what it was before. And the other problem we have now is invasive species. There are so many invasive species here that whatever ecosystem comes back, it's not going to be the same as it used to be. For WFHB, this has been Bob Kissel for Eco Report.
You're listening to Eco Report on WFHB, bringing you environmental watchdog reporting from South Central Indiana. Eco Report is currently seeking volunteer journalists to contribute short weekly headlines about ecological issues, issues from indigenous resistance to infrastructure projects to climate change and biological diversity. Commitment is light, and you can set your own schedule. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. And here's our weekly events calendar. Enjoy an Indiana Maple Syrup Weekend at the Farmstead on Saturday, March 11th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Tour the sugaring operations and learn about the maple syrup process at the Hinkle Garten Farmstead Community Historic Site located at 2920 East 10th Street in Bloomington. Do-it-yourself maple tree tapping kits and books will be available for purchase. Call 812-336-0909 for more information. Hike under the full worm moon on Saturday, March 11th from 7 to 7.30 p.m. at Spring Mill State Park. Enjoy the full moon on this short, moderate hike. Meet in front of the Spring Mill Inn. There will be an Eagle Creek Early Spring Birds field trip on Wednesday, March 15th from 9 to 11 a.m. at the Eagle Creek Ornithology Center, located at 6515 DeLong Road in Indianapolis. Join Indiana Audubon Society members for a morning tour of early arriving spring migrants and wintering birds yet to depart. You must pre-register. Email B-U-M-G-B-J-0-1 at hotmail.com. The trip is free for IAS members and a $10 fee for non-members. There is also a required entrance fee into the park. The Sycamore Land Trust is having a Preserve a Preserve Day on Thursday, March 16th from 1 to 4 p.m. at Scarlet Oak Woods in northeast Monroe County on North Viking Ridge Road in Bloomington. Pull invasive periwinkle vines that threaten to choke out spring wildflowers. Sign up by calling 812-336-5832 or email info at sycamorelandtrust.org. Take an old growth stroll at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, March 18th from 10 to 10.30 a.m. Enjoy the opportunity to take a look at the inner workings of the Spring Mill Virgin Timber Forest. Meet at the Twin Caves parking lot. And Brown County State Park is offering a Discovery Trail hike on Saturday, March 18th from 2 to 3 p.m. Meet at the Brown County State Park Nature Center for this moderate half-mile hike. Naturalist Don Glass will delight you with his love for all things nature. That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by Solar Systems of Indiana, designing and installing renewable energy systems. SSI is a member of the North American Board of Certified Energy Practitioners and works to foster the acceptance of solar energy across the Midwest through education and consultation. More information by phone at 812-336-2785 or online at solarsystemsofindiana.com. This week's news stories were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Sarah Vaughn, Dylan Maloney, and Aaron Comforti, who also edited the show. Our events calendar was compiled by Juliana Daly. Our feature was produced by Bob Kissel. 
Our executive, our board engineer is Megan Wade, and our executive producer is Joe Crawford. For WFHB, I'm Phil Casper. And I'm Juliana Daly. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before KiteLine for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news and resistance. Until then, EcoReport encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the EcoReport. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. EcoReport is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the EcoReport staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.